Hey, insiders. This week's Stay Tuned bonus is my conversation with Ann Neuberger. She is President Biden's Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technology, and she previously served over a decade at the NSA, working on some of the most challenging cybersecurity issues. We spoke at the Code Conference in California. Here is our conversation. So part of your title has the phrase emerging technologies in it. And emerging technologies are near and dear to the hearts of many of the people who are attending and who are watching. We have people who have been responsible for some of these emerging technologies. So I'll give you an example of one. And part of the reason I mentioned it is a year ago, I interviewed on this very stage the commissioner, uh, the chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission, Gary Gensler, we talked about cryptocurrency, and people talk about it all the time, and there's been some discussion about it. And, and so a preliminary question I have before we talk about the threats and the issues that arise from crypto, and I don't know if you're in a position to answer it, does the White House have a view on whether crypto is good or not good? It's a really good question. So a couple of months ago, President Biden issued an executive order, which is when the president issues kind of taskings to get the U.S. government to do a series of things on digital assets. And to your point, it talked about balancing a lot of different things that we're trying to accomplish as a country with digital assets. First, increase access to the banking system at lower cost. Allow, for example, an individual, maybe a laborer in one country, to send remittances home quickly and at a far lower cost. Second, protect consumers, protect investors. Third, counter illicit use of cryptocurrency. You know, a couple of months ago, we saw, for example, ransom, we see ransomware attacks rising, and a lot of what drives ransomware, as you know, is the money. Yeah, I'm going to ask about ransomware specifically exactly. in, in a couple of minutes. So in other words, to summarize on your question, yeah. it's good, and there are challenges, and we're trying to both gain the benefits and manage the risks. Good and challenges, but not bad. Absolutely not. Not bad, okay. Um, so one thing that I know the administration has been focusing on is one of, the, one of the ways in which cryptocurrency is maybe used in a malign way, which is to launder proceeds from cyber attacks. Is that a big deal or not? It's a big deal. As an example, so North Korea launched in 2022 31 ballistic missiles. That's more than was ever launched. Eight were launched in 2021. And we believe roughly a third of the funding funding the North Koreans' ballistic missile program comes from hacking. And over the last couple of years, that's really been hacking cryptocurrency ecosystems. You saw a $620 million hack in February. Um, additional ones that uh, may or may not have been North Korea, but we certainly are concerned about given the techniques that were used. And the way and the goal is gaining hard currency to fund the regime. And money is moved through the cryptocurrency ecosystem using mixers, for example, to launder the funds because the blockchain is public. And that's why you've seen some of the things we've done as a U.S. government to try to designate, for example, sanction, call out those mixers who facilitate that funds movement. But that's just one example of how illicit use of crypto is a significant right, concern. Does crypto really exacerbate the problem? Money laundering has been going on for a very, very long time, and hacking has also been going on for a long time, not as long a time as, as money laundering. So is crypto just one of a number of ways in which this happens that you just have to deal with because it's one of 10 things that people do that's wrong? Or does crypto, in the minds of some people, and I wonder if you agree with this or not, 
present a unique, different kind of threat. I'd love your thoughts on this backstage as well. <laughs> My thoughts on this, it is a unique, different kind of threat because it allows movement of money globally and across borders. And as you know so well, right, to counter traditional money laundering, countries have put in place rules, know, know your customer, yeah. anti-money laundering rules, and that whole set of how do you control illicit use of funds hasn't yet come to the cryptocurrency ecosystem. Countries are starting to partner together. Countries are starting to hold exchanges accountable to say when somebody opens an account, who are they, and doing some bit of homework, which enables the licit use, the, the okay use, yeah. and helps us catch. So how does the White House, where you work, coordinate with or make suggestions to the other agencies in the government, including independent agencies like the SEC? It's a great question. So first, how we do it across the U.S. government, and then I would also say, how do we do it coordinating globally around the, the world? world? Well, that's right? a whole other harder thing, right? Yep. But it's a global world, so at the end of the day, we're only going to be so effective. Even as, even as a large U.S. government, we need partners around the world moving with us. So from a U.S. government perspective, I'll use ransomware as an example, right? So we have five components to how we work to tackle ransomware. First is we work with countries around the world. So at the end of October, we'll be bringing 36 countries from 30 different time zones to D.C. to talk about implementing Know Your Customer rules, to talk about how you do blockchain analysis, to talk about digital infrastructure, how they build their own digital infrastructure to give access from a banking perspective. The second part of that is diplomacy. Right? working with countries around the world to say, if there are countries that are harboring criminals, for example, or harboring individuals who are moving funds in illegal ways, work with us to help bring them to justice. Resilience, improving cybersecurity, disruption, trying to find the criminal actors who are doing this so that we can also you know, bring down that infrastructure that supports it. So those are all parts of the approach for around the world and for the U.S. government, that executive order I pointed to earlier, which lays out a number of requests for Treasury, for the Fed, for OSTP, talking about what is the energy use of crypto mining, and lays all of that out and then brings it back together so that we balance the different goals. I want to get to a new thing um, that I think is not getting enough attention. You know, I talked about it before. Quantum computing. Three guys think that's funny. Um, maybe they know something we don't know. Um, you have called quantum computing uh, a, a nuclear threat to cybersecurity. One thing, among others, that, that quantum computing will cause, particularly if an adversary like China or some other adversary develops the ability to engage in quantum computing before us, or even if it's not before us, is basically to make all encryption, modern day current encryption obsolete. What did you mean when you said it's a nuclear threat to cybersecurity? So there are two core kinds of encryption. There is asymmetric or public key encryption, the kind we do when we go shopping online, right? It's transparent to us. When we click, we see the little um, locket and we know we're having a secure transaction. The underpinning math and algorithms relies on a core math principle that if you have really large numbers, if you multiply those two numbers to get to an even larger number, it takes a very long time to figure out what those two beginning numbers are. Right, and, and the, the genius of quantum computing, if it's achieved, and everyone thinks it will be in some single digit number of years, is that that kind of math, those kinds of False. computations can be done 
dramatically quicker, more dramatically quickly. faster right. to where that kind of encryption could be broken. Right. And it, so, um, what is your level of concern? It sounds like a high level of concern. What's your level of concern on the encryption issue? If China gets there first, or does it not matter? Encryption protects commerce online. Encryption protects our privacy. Coming out of the intelligence community, encryption protects our national secrets. So it's a real concern. It's a concern enough that we've begun the transition in the US government to what's called post-quantum cryptography, cryptography that can defend against a quantum computer. You may have seen earlier this summer, NIST released the first four algorithms. NIST? Yes, yeah. the National Institute for? for Standards and Technology. Okay. Thank you, as, as part of the Department Even of Commerce. Even this group doesn't know every acronym. Neither do I. And, um, and they released those first four algorithms that can withstand the assault of a quantum computer. Now, transitioning the entire crypto ecosystem in our routers, in our firewalls, in our browsers, to that kind of cryptography will take some time. It's kind of thinking about Y2K. Yeah, I was, gonna, so exactly. I was, I was exactly what I was thinking. If Y2, which turned out to be a bust, or is that because we did a great job? I don't remember, I was younger then. Uh, if Y2K, um, thank you very much. Uh, if Y2K was just for the sake of argument, a five on a scale of one to 10 in terms of complexity and problem, what's this? Depends how well we prepare and depends really on the work that happens between technologists in government and in the private sector working to make that transition. It's a hugely cool opportunity. So it's a nine? Pretty much. <laughs> I, I just wanted a number. Um, so you're talking about going forward. So going forward, are you fairly optimistic about the, at least the U.S. governments and, and U.S. business, their ability to protect information going forward and encrypt in a new way? Are you pretty confident about that? It will be a, a lot of work. What I can say is we've started that work and are rallying. You're not gonna commit. I will, How many yeah. years is it gonna take? We estimate it'll take, well, the last time we as a country did that kind of a major encryption transition, it took us a decade. And we believe we have a decade until you think we do. potentially an adversary has a quantum computer. But, but. we've started, you asked a really interesting question, which is some of the data we have is transient. We don't really care if it's, you know, lasts a moment. So for example, the path I'll take to get from here to the airport, right? That right. will that's change. That's actually, that's important. For it you. only matters for a few moments. <laughs> right. Versus, for example, intelligence secrets, yeah. which could be of interest to another country 10 years from now. So that's one of the reasons why we believe some countries around the world are starting to store even encrypted data so you mentioned ransomware already. I would imagine that there are some folks in this room for whom ransomware has already been an actual crisis to deal with. And for many folks in this room and who are watching, it's a looming potential problem, right? It's, it's on, the, on the rise, am I correct? Uh, and it presents a very severe dilemma for folks in the private sector and I guess the public sector too. Do you have a view or does the White House have a view on whether or not they, do they advocate not paying ransomware, paying it sometimes, never paying it? What's, what's the advice to folks here if they are the victims of a ransomware attack? It's a tough question that we actively debated across US government just about a year ago. 
And we were actively debating it because the idea of paying ransoms, think about it in the human context, right? The idea is I'm that... I'm against it. Good, Generally, so but there's a but, but, but it's problematic, right? Because it people is. have businesses to run. So what was the conclusion of yep. the debate? So I was referencing it in the human context because the thinking there was that if you pay a ransom, you're incentivizing the next act and the next act right. and the next but act. But against a different right? victim. Agreed. Right. I see your point about the moral hazard. Yeah. But we ultimately made a decision not to ban ransom payments because there was the sense that there are, it is so hard and so much more work needs to be done to improve the security of tech, to improve the cybersecurity of systems, that we'd essentially be pressing victims to make their payments go undercover yeah. instead of having them reach out, ask for support, and get that support to recover quickly. So, so you said that at, at least at this moment, a decision to ban the payment of ransomware was taken off the table, but do you have guidance? We actively, actively discourage it. So here's the guidance, right? First, right. there's basic cybersecurity practices, yeah. which is to say, back up and keep your backups offline. So if your systems are locked and encrypted, you've got a backup and you can recover. The second are the cybersecurity practices we all know about, right? Use multi-factor authentication, encrypt your data on your own. So even if an if an attacker gets access to a network and they get the data, they can't break it for all the reasons we've just talked about from an encryption perspective. So our first really strongest request is do those practices because then you really are protected against only the most sophisticated attackers. And then beyond that, if somebody does get hit, reach out to the FBI or CISA as the, as the Los Angeles Unified uh, School District did over the weekend, and we will surge support to help you recover. So there are various incentives to pay the ransomware or not. Um, some of them are obvious. Do you have a view on whether insurance companies should be in the business of, because it's a matter, it's a risk. Or the, the, a ransomware attack, if it hasn't happened to you yet, may happen and you assess the, the likelihood of that happening. And for all other kinds of risk, flooding and everything else, power going out, you buy insurance. Do you have a, does the White House have a view on whether or not insurance companies should provide coverage against ransomware? They actively should not pay a ransom, but insurance companies play a, can play a really big role. Here's an example, right? Yeah. You know, if we have home insurance, that home insurance is contingent on having an alarm system, having smoke detectors installed, right? They're giving you the practices you need to stay safe. Similarly, when, you know, folks who have car insurance, right? Individuals who are reckless drivers will have a harder time and pay more to right. get car insurance. And we think similarly, where insurance can incentivize good cybersecurity practices is you know, companies that have their data encrypted, companies that do, or individuals that do use two ways of authenticating can, should have lower premiums and lower insurance. Right. But if the insurance companies get into this, that's gonna be a lot more, assuming these other conditions are met, and, they, and the companies care about these conditions as a business proposition, that means a lot more ransomware is gonna get paid. Do you worry that that means there's gonna be a lot more ransomware attacking. We believe that if insurance companies made higher thresholds for if you wanna buy insurance, you've gotta do these things, that makes it a lot harder for attackers because many attackers are using vulnerabilities that are known where there are patches available. If we can raise the bar to where an attacker has to come up with something new each time, we would see the number of attacks dramatically fall. It's way too easy today. So don't pay it, get insurance. Um, I want to talk about infrastructure, and part of your portfolio is protecting U.S. infrastructure against cyber attack. 
And by the way, this is something that has been talked about for a long time. I became the U.S. attorney 13 years ago. And as far back as that, um, I and others in the, at the top of the government and law enforcement and the intelligence communities have been warning against the safety and security of our infrastructure. But nothing major has really happened. And I, I wonder after so much time, are we, have we overblown, the pro have we overstated the problem? Are we actually pretty secure or not? So I'd love for you to ask that question to the fantastic team at um, the LA Unified School District, FBI, and LA Police Department, who spent much of this weekend um, trying to recover from a crippling ransomware attack so school could open this morning. Right, but that's not, a, and, and that's, that's a very significant thing, but I'm speaking about dams and bridges yep. and the power grid that we keep talking about. Are we okay on that or not? We're one of the last countries in the world to have minimum cybersecurity standards for our critical infrastructure. So today, for example, if you operate an oil and gas pipeline, until a year ago, when we put in place cybersecurity minimum mandates, and they're basic things, like have an incident response plan, patch your systems within a certain period of time, et cetera, there were no requirements for critical oil and gas pipelines. And similarly, in our water sector, we're working now to put in place those requirements. So here's what I would say. Until we have minimum cybersecurity mandates across the largest critical infrastructure, you know, there are 96 oil and gas pipelines that are the largest. They serve either they transport hazardous materials or they serve a certain number of Americans. Those are the ones that we say the harm that could be caused by a disruption or destruction akin to what occurred with Colonial Gas Pipeline last year is so significant that we need you as a partner to put these requirements in place. So we're working through that sector by sector because every sector looks different. And I think until those are in place, we won't feel that we have the confidence to let Americans know that that infrastructure is at least, you know, you've locked your digital doors, you've locked your windows, you put on an alarm to know that you can rapidly detect an attacker and capture it before it causes harm. With respect to who our cyber adversaries are, and I know you've talked about this and you get asked about this all the time, but for this group, which countries are you most concerned about? Should we be most concerned about? And they include, obviously, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, which I think combined has the computing power of like a Commodore 64, can still engage in cyber attacks. We had the Sony hack a few years ago. Just very succinctly, where's the greatest threat coming from with respect to other countries? You know, each of the countries you talked about use cyber attacks to achieve a different goal, right? The Chinese have one of the largest programs. We see a real focus on stealing tech from countries yeah. around the world to really advantage their companies. Similarly, from a military doctrine perspective, they really see disrupting critical infrastructure as a way to get a population to not support you know, countries engaging in a conflict. On the North Korea side, we talked about, you know, ironically enough, what's so fascinating about North Korea is, as you said, right? You look at a picture at night, I they're mean, pretty dark. They have like three computers. On the other hand, some of the most, you know, really innovative attacks on crypto infrastructure, right? Using the gig economy to glean money for the state happens in North Korea. Yeah. So, you know, that's Because they have to be resourceful. It's true. Yeah. It drives um, in that way. So obviously in your position, it's very sensitive and you deal with classified information, top secret information, which obviously you cannot talk about. My question is, would you have been able to talk about that stuff 
if we did code at Mar-a-Lago? <laughs> All right, that was a joke question. Next it's question. not a real question. But you know, you I wonder. You knew we had to get that in there. <laughs> Thank you again for becoming a Cafe Insider. Listen to the Cafe Insider podcast every Tuesday and stay tuned every Thursday.